Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Uh, good evening and uh, welcome everyone. Um, as you can probably see from the logo that I have here, um, a large part of the audience that we have here tonight is also attending a, uh, a conference that we have on campus for the next three days, uh, looking at the science of coral reefs. And as Francesco mentioned, I'm going to be deviating from that path a little bit. Um, as some of you are aware, I'm a very active member of the Natural History Group in the UAE, where we do all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. So I've published papers on insects in desert streams, um, the canopy architecture of acacia trees, and random bits and bobs that I do just for fun on the side. Um, and what I'm going to be talking about tonight is uh, Jezerat al-Hamra, which means the Red Island uh, up in Ras al-Khaimah, which is one of the Northern Emirates I'll show you on a map in just a moment if you're not from here. Um, that's really a fascinating place because you go to this place and there's literally hundreds and hundreds of buildings, all made from coral, entirely abandoned. And so there's this, I started looking at it about two and a half or three years ago, hadn't, having never been there, and I wandered up there with the Natural History Group, and I, I just fell in love with the place because it's beautiful, as you'll see. Um, and so we started doing sort of a side project on this, uh, and this is a collaboration between myself, uh, my research assistant, Nora Al-Mansouri, who's somewhere here in the audience over there. Um, she did a ton of work on this project, so I'd like to acknowledge her, uh, and also Julie Retram, who is also somewhere in the audience. Um, and she did the geochemical dating that I'll be talking about. Um, and this opening photo just gives you an idea of the, the weird situation that we have up in the Northern Emirates. And I guess it helps if I... So that's working. There we go. Um, so for context, for those of you who aren't from the Emirates, that yellow dot up there is where Jezerat al-Hamra is located. It's in the, the Emirate called Ras al-Khaimah. And I'm going to just flick through a few photos to show you what you see if you wander up there today. Um, and this is basically a little coastal uh, village um, that just maybe starts 50 meters from the sea. Um, and you'll see these, these sandy blocks with bits of coral mixed in with them. You'll see mangrove poles integrated in there. Uh, the mangrove poles that used to be used to hold up the Arish roofs, the palm frond roofs on, on these buildings. Um, and just an incredible extent of these. You'll see in some of the more modern buildings a little bit of cement, but those are very rare. And instead what you see dominating this area is um, buildings that look like this, where you start to see the elements of coral popping through what used to be the coverage for those um, those buildings. So these were traditionally masonry covered and you wouldn't be able to see the corals. Um, but it's been a number of years that these have been sitting here and so you can see that's flaking off and giving you an idea of what um, the core of these walls look like. And as you can see, there's an extensive amount of corals in each of these uh, buildings. And as you get in closer, you notice that there are all sorts of different species that you see in there. So this is, for example, a species of platygyra, a brain coral. Um, you see things like Cyphastria, uh, which is cauliflower coral, I guess. I don't know what the common name for it is, actually. Um, and you can see exquisite detail in the coralites of these, which later I'll be talking about we use for identification purposes. Um, and when you step back and you look at sort of drone footage of Jezreel Alhammer, that's where you really get a perspective on the scale of this industry of coral mining that happened, um, went on. We're talking about a total of 
in excess of 500 different buildings that were up there um, that basically come from the sea and move inland. So just an amazing, really interesting little place. And you can see that traditional Arabic architecture where they have the little home surrounded by the courtyard that's going around that area. Um, but I thought it would be good to step back. So go from modern times and step back to the origin of Jezreel Alhamra and talk about that a little bit because I find the, the, the origin story for this whole region very interesting. And I should put this in context that recognize that I'm a biologist. I am not an archaeologist nor a historian. So I'm trying to do this um, from my interest, uh, but I may make a few minor mistakes here and there. And please correct me if you pick anything up. So, um, so you're aware, you know, during the last ice age, there was no Arabian Gulf. Uh, it was the Shat-Ur River that came down from what is today modern-day Iraq and sort of emptied out as a river uh, into the Gulf of Oman, what's today's Gulf of Oman. And we saw sort of about 15,000 years ago, the sea levels were about 100 meters below what we have today. And as time went on and the glaciers retreated, we saw the sea levels rising around the world, which is what you're seeing in this graphic here, and that we had basically the waters coming up until about 6,000 years ago. So the, the flat line represents today's uh, water levels. So we had a little peak and then it sort of oscillated a bit before we get our modern coastlines of today. So there was a period there where the Gulf itself was in flux. And this is important because the Gulf has bathymetry. So a lot of us who are in Abu Dhabi recognize the Gulf as being very shallow, but it's not entirely uh, shallow. If you look over towards the coastline of Iran, for example, you can see it's very deep there. It goes down to uh, 90 meters or so. And so what we had initially was this red line, that's the Shat-Ur River, leading out from where Mesopotamia would have been a little bit later um, and sort of discharging into the Gulf of Oman. But as time went on, you can see the, the transgression of the world seas into the Gulf as the Gulf expanded. And so you can see starting about, uh, I can't see my numbers on the screen, 18,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago. And the modern coastlines that we have today are roughly around 6,000 years old, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and so there's a bit of fluctuation around those, but that's around the time where you start seeing coastal settlements uh, on our modern shorelines. Now, that's not to say that we didn't have settlements in what's today's UAE further out, but they're underwater now. And so we haven't had any evidence of them. Um, and at the same time we had this transgression of the seas coming in, we had a very different climate at that point. So we had a much stronger monsoon during this early period. So this is the period where Mesopotamia is starting to change. There's people going from nomadic uh, to settlement, and they're starting to develop agriculture. And that period was a period with this stronger monsoon. We had around 10 to 15% higher rain levels than we did today. And so instead of seeing the desert that you have today in a place like the UAE, Think of more like a savanna-like system. So you would have had your acacia trees and grasslands around this area. And so that period is basically known as the climactic optimum uh, for just that reason. A much less hostile environment that we have today. And as a result of this, you had the development of civilization. So we had Mesopotamia development, developing and then various other locations around the Gulf started popping up with people developing settlements and going from being nomadic to pastoral. Um, and we then went through these various different periods of, of uh, uh, various cultural periods, like the Ubaid, Uruk, Sumerian, and so on, dynastic periods. So Jezeret al-Hamra, basically the first evidence that we have for settlement uh, at this location was around this time of the climactic optimum, which sort of makes sense. At this point, uh, Jezeret al-Hamra would have been a few kilometers inland from its uh, 
its current location. And at that point, like I said before, we, we would have had a, a vegetation that was dominated by uh, grasses and shrubs. And we would have had um, things like goats and sheeps being used. There is some evidence of um, cattle being used in these middens, but uh, fairly sparse. Um, so this map is showing you uh, the location of what are called middens by archaeologists, which is basically garbage heaps, historical garbage heaps, uh, which archaeologists mine to try and understand what's going on with the culture and, and uh, trade in these uh, historic areas. And you can see the modern Jezreel Alhamra village is being shown there as an arrow on um, that little island. It was a tidal island originally, it's no longer, it's connected to the land now. Um, but you can see there was a lot of uh, people living on the mainland at this point during the climactic optimum about eight to 6,000 years ago. Uh, we have in those middens lots of evidence for um, interesting cultural exchange going on. So for example, we see these uh, flint blades, axe heads, uh, and arrowheads. And the regional similarity of these, if you look at that same time period in other locations around the Gulf, what you see is a great deal of overlap uh, in the way that they're building these things, which suggests that there's a lot of um, trade of knowledge going on at this point, as well as trade of artifacts. Um, and that's called the Arabian bifacial tradition. So it's sort of a hallmark of what's going on around here at this point. Um, they would have been relying on livestock in this village at this point, as I said, mainly goats and sheep. Um, but they were starting to also dip into the sea for some of their uh, food resources. Um, so we see evidence in the middens of things like sinkers for the nets to keep them on the bottom. Um, there's a whole slew of different mollusks that were found in these middens. So they were cracking these mollusks to get the meat out of them, um, including mangrove whelks, showing that the area surrounding this island was uh, full of mangroves at that point. And it was up until quite recently, lately, uh, actually. Um, and then there's uh, things like fish and crab bones in there, which... Uh, People like Mark Beach love to study. I don't know why. I've done some bone work and it's painful. Um, but very interestingly, we also see evidence of dugongs in there, um, sea cows for those of you who aren't from here. And uh, dugongs being present there is really interesting because dugongs today only exist basically in western Abu Dhabi where they, we have the seagrass beds, which suggests at that time with different environmental conditions, we had seagrass beds as far up as into the northern Emirates. Um, and they do have bone uh, uh, cut marks on the bones showing that they were butchered on site. So it's not like they were transported uh, a long way in a refrigerated truck, for example. Um, and Jezreel Alhamra at this point was part of a large uh, trade network that was developing all across the Gulf at this point. We see things like Ubaid pottery shards coming from Mesopotamia around 7,000 years ago. Um, from around 6,000 years ago, we see beaded jewelry that shows evidence of coming from Asia. And again, those arrowheads that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, and this is basically contemporary with some other uh, archaeological sites that we have in the Northern Emirates, uh, in Amal Kawain and Ras al-Khaima that I'll mention a little bit later. Uh, but at this point, Jezreel al-Hamra is basically considered the principal um, late prehistoric sites by Daniel Potts and a few other authors uh, who study this, this area. So it's a really interesting, fascinating place that has a very long, long history. Um, but it disappears. So we had this population that was growing, things were doing well, and then what we had what was called the Dark Millennium. And the reason it was called the Dark Millennium is, was that transition from a humid environment to an arid environment. And so at this point, things got environmentally very challenging for human populations in this area. Um, and so what we had was basically an environmental collapse. 
we had a transition going from these grassland savanna-like conditions to the more arid desert conditions that we have today. And that just can't support the vegetation, particularly if you're growing things like goats, which are notorious for eating um, your grasses down and leading to desertification. And it's at this point that we see the middens there basically stop. Um, so showing that people had uh, stopped residing in this area and they had instead switched to becoming nomadic again, starting moving around. And so we got this reversion of nomadism. Um, at this point, what they were mainly doing is not uh, just dying off and going off into the desert. Many people who were in those northern emirates moved over to Oman. And so if you go to the south of Oman in particular, there's a lot of evidence that all of these populations started popping up at the base of wadis, the dry riverbeds, which is an area where you're going to have more access to fresh water, so more resources basically, as well as to the marine resources, which are quite rich in uh, Oman as well. So there's basically discontinuity at this point in the archaeological record for about a thousand years, 1500 years, something like that. And it continues into the Bronze Age. Um, there's a few major coastal sites that develop in the Northern Emirates, in particular Tel Abrak, which is in Amal Kawain, and then Shamal, which is in Ras al um, And that's these sites are basically four kilometers inland from today's modern coastlines, which is again a reflection of the fact that we have this, this sea levels that rose, you'll remember on that earlier graph, where they rose above today's sea levels and then later transitioned down. So this is in one of those periods where it was uh, oscillating a little bit. Um, again, we have these populations involved in extensive trade, uh, particularly in copper, uh, which this area is famous for in Oman, uh, obviously, as well as uh, pottery and jewelry. And uh, we start to see the development of uh, trade um, uh, manufacturing processes, let's say, for um, metallurgy, um, which was very common here. We also see the start of the development of proper buildings. So prior to this, all of the archaeological evidence suggests that what we had, for the most part, was Arish huts. So these, these palm frond buildings with some mangrove poles holding things up um, that uh, basically were not permanent structures. It had to be regularly reworked. Here, instead, we start to see in a few of these sites major fort uh, construction for defensive purposes, obviously, as well as tomb construction using uh, either unworked boulders or potentially mud brick in some cases. But those Arish structures, those palm frond structures still remain really common um, in the surrounding area, sort of think of it as outside of the downtown. Um, but the environment very much is still controlling these populations. So they're not booming populations. We have a few that are doing okay, um, but it's certainly not uh, the scale that it was a little bit earlier. Um, we do see a shift from that pastoral diet I talked about earlier to a focus more on marine species. So letting us know that basically there wasn't enough food on land to support the population, so they were getting the resources that they could to support them. Um, at this point in Tel Abrak, for example, uh, that was on the modern coastline then, four kilometers inland now, the majority of stuff that's showing up in the middens is actually fish um, or derivations of fish, um, as well as things like turtles and dugongs that I mentioned a bit earlier. Um, we see an explosion of um, settlements starting all across the Northern Emirates and into the Eastern Emirates uh, around the Iron Age, about 3,000 years ago. Um, and this is basically because of two innovations that happened basically at the same time. One was the development of the Falage uh, irrigation system, which is a, a network of 
Think of them as channels that you curve into rocks so you can get your water from over here and move it kilometers away down there in the Rocky Mountainous areas which are surrounding this area. Um, as well as the domestication of the camel. Um, and so at this point, what the camels were being used for was not food, but basically overland trading. So we had this well-developed marine network uh, of exchange, and we started also going inland using camels for transportation. Um, at this point, the Northern Emirates were involved in heavy trade, particularly with the Hormuz uh, island across the way in Iran, until the collapse of the Persian Empire uh, around 300 BC. BCE. Um, so in the first several centuries of the common area, um, there was another important settlement that was basically right next to where Jezreel al-Hamra sits today called Adur. Um, and this is a fairly large village. At this point, it's about four square kilometers. Um, and it's just a little bit back from Jezreel al-Hamra and sits on the modern coastline. So it is reflecting sort of the, the, the transition to today's modern sea levels. And we see at this point a shift in the, the style of building their townships, if you want to think of it that way. You're getting a lot more um, movement away from having a restructures to big, hard, complex structures that are made up by stonework, basically. Um, and just a few pictures to show you um, what they look like in that location. Um, so this is from one of the archaeological digs at Adur, showing you that many of the buildings at this point were made up of uh, uh, what's called farouche, which is... Think of it, if you go down to the coastline in the Gulf today and you look in some of these really saline lagoon uh, situations, you'll see the mud just packs up and packs up. And it, when it starts to dry out, it basically turns into a stone. And that's what they were using at that place. So you can either go down and cut it out directly and use it, or you can actually set up a little uh, casing or a mold and, and put the mud in there and just leave it out in the sun. And so that's what they were using to build uh, this fascinating little village at uh, Adur. Um, they also had things like alabaster that they started incorporating into their architecture at this point, which is really interesting because it's translucent. So think of it as, um, uh, I don't know, a non-digital version of windows. Um, so they're letting light into their houses using these, but keeping out the environment, if you want to think of it that way. And at this point, you also see them starting to use gypsum on the outside of the building. So they're putting that layer of gypsum on the outside as sort of a, a veneer that they're coating all of these buildings with. But again, at this point, still no use of corals in any of these buildings. Now, around 800 AD is when we start to see this return to Jezreel al-Hamra. So the people had sort of gone off during the dark millennium, had repopulated the surrounding areas. Populations have been going up and down. But there doesn't seem to be any archaeological evidence for permanent settlement back at Jezreel al-Hamra until about this point. Um, so this is at the start of the Islamic period. And uh, we see Samara pottery in there, which is showing that this little island was involved in a lot of international trade around the Gulf region. Um, and at this point, there was a, a number of major sites sort of down in western Abu Dhabi, like Surbenias, um, al Nar, etc., um, that were abandoned at this point, or, or uh, went down in numbers at least. Um, and instead, people moving to populate these newer areas. And basically, this is happening during the medieval warm period. And what's going on is that around this area, what the medieval warm period did was it led to a stronger monsoon and stronger monsoons led to higher rainfall. So we had things improving marginally uh, in this very arid environment that we had here and people immediately took advantage of that. Um, at this point, Jezreel al-Hamra was still all Arish buildings, so the palm frond buildings that we talked about a little bit earlier with some low-lying uh, middens, but no evidence of stone buildings. 
So it would have looked a lot like this. So this is a super modern picture. It's like 1950 or something in Abu Dhabi. But just to give you a context for what villages would have looked like on Jezreel al-Hamra at this point. So we then have a few centuries go by and we start to see the rise of the Northern Emirates. And for those of you who aren't familiar with UAE history, the Northern Emirates were the powerhouse of the UAE before the rise of oil. Um, well, let's give it a century or two around there. Um, but we have at this point Jalfar as a major urban center up there, which is just north of today's uh, city of Ras al-Khaimah. Um, and it went through a profound economic revolution around the year 1300. Um, and this is basically because the folks across the water in Iran um, were, they had a very well-developed mercantile network, but didn't have the environment to support them. So they're basically kind of like the UAE does today, looking outside to get food to bring in to support the population. And so a lot of what was going on in the Northern Emirates at that point was actually raising food, either as uh, fodder crops or, or vegetables or animals, and sending them across uh, to support uh, the populations on the other side. So initially, this area was under control of the Hormuz at this point. Um, and then the Portuguese moved in. Um, and like many of the uh, European colonizations led to a lot of dramatic change very, very quickly. Um, so the Portuguese moved in there a, a little bit later at 1500s. And we do see this transition going on in terms of the architecture of what's going on in these villages as well. So in the early 1300s, what you see in the middens is basically only evidence of these Arish huts. Um, the late 1300s, you start to see them developing this mud brick houses that I talked about earlier, the Farouche uh, mud bricks. Um, and then around the 1400s, which is when the peak of the population occurred at Jolfer, we had a fairly large for that time, village. So it's about five square kilometers right on the coast. Um, and it's at that point that you start seeing coral appearing in buildings. So this is sort of the first um, use of coral that we see uh, here in the UAE. Um, and it's basically being widely used in supporting the wall that goes around the town. So the protective barrier around the, the, the town, as well as in the mosque itself. And you've got to reflect on, well, why are they using coral? Like, it seems like an awfully um, costly thing to be using because obviously you got to go to the sea, mine this out, etc. But you also have to recognize if you're sitting in Abu Dhabi or Dubai or even that far south in Ras al-Khaimah, you have no access to stone. The stone is in the mountains. These are all deserts, right? And so you're looking for a hard substrate to support your buildings and you're going with what's most easily accessible. Um, and we see a little bit of... Uh, let's say, evolution of the trade where they started incorporating lime as well. So crushing up stone or um, shells and using that to develop lime to, to hold this stuff together. But then we had the collapse of the Jolfar. So the, the reason, so that's showing a picture from the 1930s that was taken by the Brits. Um, and that arrow at the top is showing you where Jolfar was located. And what happened was, uh, again, just environmental change. So in this case, what happened was they had a nice lagoon in behind Jalfar, which is where they bring the boats in, park them, load them up, send them off. And something happened that caused the siltation of that lagoon over time. And so the lagoon started silting up, um, and that put pressure on the population because it could no longer uh, use that as a, a safe port. And so what they did is basically all at once... Um, up and left uh, Jolfar and moved. Um, and so the majority of the movement actually went here, uh, which you can see at the bottom of the map. That's the tip of Ras al-Khaimah city today. Um, so if you're trying to 
orient yourself. So Ras al-Khaimah proper is down just this way here. And so they moved out of Jolfar and basically developed what we have today as the capital of that emirate. So they moved from there down to uh, Ras al-Khaimah uh, around 1575. And this is really nicely ties with the oral record from this area, which a lot of people who had been in Jezreel al-Hamra have suggested that it was around 1600 that the area started to develop as a village. Um, and at this point, it would have been a tidal island. Um, so it would have been surrounded by water with mangroves in that area, as well as some sabcha. So basically at low tide, you could walk across it. Uh, high tide, it's completely surrounded. And we had, over the next couple of centuries, the rise of what we call the Pirate Coast, if you look at the old map. So I have a really old map of the UAE that I keep in my home, and it's literally called the Pirate Coast uh, along the edge of it. Um, and that's not because the British and Dutch started coming in, but rather because there was raiding parties on the British and Dutch. And so they labeled this um, the, uh, the Pirate Coast. Um, so at this point, the the... Major force in the Northern Emirates is the same uh, people that rule Ras al-Khaimah today, the Qawasim tribe or the Al-Qasimi, uh, some of you may call them. So they basically are emerging in the early 1700s and then they start fighting with the British because there's this piracy that's going on. They're looking for resources. Um, and so they had their first skirmish in the early 1700s. Um, they're basically being labeled as pirates and smugglers. And obviously the Brits are trying to develop a large trade network to support their empire, right? And so they do not like this at all because it disrupts their trade. Um, and so they sent out an expeditionary force in 1809. We're going to bring down the Qawasim and they got crushed, like completely crushed. So the Brits went home with their tails between their legs. They came back with a second expeditionary force, uh, force in the early 1800s. That one was marginally more successful, but still didn't uh, put the nail in the coffin. So they came back with a very large group in uh, 1819 um, and uh, basically uh, had conflict all the way from the Sea of Oman down into uh, the Western Abu Dhabi to Qatar. Um, and so in this final expedition, we had all the military equipment and all the boats basically destroyed in Ras al-Khaimah and Jezreel al-Hamra all the way down to Qatar. Um, so they went on a mission to make sure that this was uh, a finality, let's say. And that led to what's called the General Treaty of Peace. Um, and at this point, Sheikh Khatib was running uh, Jezreel al-Hamra, and he basically surrendered uh, on the condition that, you know, um, personal safety for him and his people at Jezreel al-Hamra would be guaranteed by the Brits from that point, which was fine. And I like to show this uh, image here, which is one thing the Brits are great at is recording stuff. Um, and they even had artists that were sitting on some of these ships. So this is actually a drawing of Rasul, or, uh, sorry, of Jezreel al-Hamra from Anchorage, just in front of Jezreel al-Hamra. And you can actually see the mountains of Ras al-Khaimah in the background, which they're about 30 or 40 kilometers away, but you can see them very clearly. Um, so really nice. Uh, we had the continuation of uh, tensions, though. So it went from being the Brits getting uh, having issues on the sea with their maritime trade to rather intertribal warfare going on um, in the 1800s. Um, so there was various feuds and skirmishes that were going on from the 1820s after this general treaty of peace. Um, and the major conflicts seemed to be going on between Ras al-Khaimah at that time and its neighboring powerhouse, or sorry, Sharjah. Um, and we do have evidence that there was fighting going on in Jezreel al-Hamra at that point too, so quite an active area. Um, we had peak settlement 
in around 1900. So Lorimer, who if you're a historian, you'll know that name. He was a guy who wrote the Gazetteer, or at least he's labeled uh, a side of it, which was basically the Brits' records for this area when they were out here doing these expeditions. And so he's going around doing censuses of all these coastal villages and trying to understand what's going on in these areas. And so this is uh, a map from one of the related books that came out of that work, um, showing you sort of an idea of what the town looked like at that point. Um, and it's a big town. So this was a major town for the UAE at that point. Uh, we had about 2,500 people, most of whom were from the Alzab tribe. Um, there was also some smaller tribes there, the Khwatar and uh, Shihun, uh, Shihu, um, but they were relatively minor in terms of the proportion of the population, very much driven by the Al-Zab. At this point, the Al-Zab were the largest tribe in Ras al-Khaimah, so they rivaled um, the Al-Qawasim tribe, both in terms of their numbers as well as in terms of their power. Um, at this point, the town was made up of those 500 buildings that I showed you a little bit earlier. Um, mainly made from coral um, with that little plaster coating on them. What's interesting about Jezreel Alhamra, though, is that it's actually a winter residence. So it wasn't resided in year-round. People would go uh, there in the wintertime. And if you actually look at the architecture of the buildings up close here and compare them to a place like Dubai or Doha, it's very different. Um, and the reason is Dubai or Doha were lived in year-round. Here, they're only living there in wintertime, and so what they do is they orient their buildings to the complete opposite direction to what Dubai does. Because in Dubai, they want to catch as much wind as possible because it's roasting hot in the summertime. So they've got the wind towers and all this other stuff. So they're trying to get as much wind as possible through their houses. These guys are living here only in wintertime, so they have all their buildings oriented perpendicular to the wind so that you know they basically reduce the surface area uh, and minimize cooling because it gets very, very cold in those northern Emirates. Is, uh, Anyone who's been up there in the wintertime can attest. We, we do get snow up there, for example. Um, so in the summertime, what would happen is uh, the fellows that were there would uh, take off and go to the purling banks for the summertime and do that sort of work. And uh, the ladies and the kids would head back to Khat, which is a, sort of an oasis that's inland from Jezreel al-Hamra. And so they'd stay there through the summer months, and then we get this migration back and forth between the two, much like we have the Alain and uh, Abu Dhabi migration that happened uh, during the purling period. Uh, in the early 1900s, so we're getting there, um, the Al-Zab basically start a decades-long conflict with the Qawasim. Um, and so there's conflict that's going on between these two uh, sheikdoms at this point. And basically, Jezerat al-Hamra at this point became politically interesting because they started bringing in people from some of the other tribes that were also aligned against the Qawasim tribe in uh, Ras al-Khaimah. Um, and the Brits are very good in their records at recording uh, all of these. So their head office was basically in Bahrain at the time. And so you can see all these telegrams uh, going back and forth, talking about all these different conflicts that are going on in the Northern Emirates. Um, and this conflict escalated with the discovery of oil, uh, and in particular, uh, concession payments after World War II. Um, so we see, for example, in 1949, that uh, anyone who's from the UAE will know the highway that goes from Sharjah up to Ras al-Khaimah that main road, well, they blocked off that main road and basically wouldn't let any passage of goods that were arriving in Sharjah at the port there to, to come up to Ras al-Khaimah, and they set up firing positions. Then there was retaliation by the Qawasim tribe, of course, um, and they went basically and seized the well, which is obviously of critical importance 
um, here in the, the Gulf, um, as well as some of the fortified towers that were in Jezreel al-Hamra. Um, and then most importantly, they took, uh, uh, they imprisoned um, one of the Sheikh's sons and as well as two of the prominent merchants, pearl merchants in the town at that point, and brought them uh, as guests of the royal family in Ras al-Khaimah um, in their dungeon. Um, now, this, uh, this basically ended in the 19, early 1950s when the sheikh who's ruling Jezreel uh, al-Hamra at the time agreed to pay tribute payments and to allow functional control of Jezreel al-Hamra uh, by the, the, the appointees of uh, the Kawasim tribe at that point. I'm Canadian, so I had to put a Canadian reference, uh, a little Brian Adams for you. Um, so... At this point, there was a census going on, and um, the Al-Zab at that point were huge. So they were the seventh largest uh, tribe in the UAE as a whole, not just in the Northern Emirates. So uh, very important in terms of their numbers. It's still around that 2,500 number that I talked about earlier, and that represents around 4% of the UAE's population at this point. So really a significant uh, amount of people that were living there. Um, but at this time, we had this tension, this conflict that was going on that was not really resolved. The tension is still there. And we had the Brits uh, pulling back out of uh, managing things in this region and handing over control uh, to the people who resided here. And at this point, Sheikh Zayed was uh, sort of in line for the throne and he's having conversations with people in some of the other emirates and in this particular case he's talking to uh, Sheikh Maktoum, Rashid Al Maktoum in uh, Dubai and uh, trying to figure out a way to resolve this conflict. Um, so what he did was he basically made an offer to the Al-Zab tribe and he basically said well we're forming this federation why don't you come down and help us build this country. Um, so he offered them government jobs as well as housing uh, here in Abu Dhabi for them to come out of uh, Jezreel al-Hamra, which diffused the tension with the uh, would diffuse the tension with the Qawasim tribe. And so what you get is a mass migration. In just a couple of years, the entire town vanishes. All the people that had been living there migrated down to Abu Dhabi. And if you actually open up uh, Google Maps on your phone and look at Abu Dhabi, just behind Wadha Mall, you'll see there's a part of this city that's called Al-Zab um, after the tribe moving down here because that's primarily where they resided. And so we were then left with these fascinating buildings that you see when you go down to Jezreel al-Hamra today, um, crumbling to scale. So... That wasn't the end of the story, of course, for Jezreel al-Hamra. Um, we had a lot of coastal development started in this area, first with the development of Al Jazeera port, uh, directly next uh, to the um, Jezreel al-Hamra settlement. Um, later on, we started getting erosion because of this coastal modification, so they installed some big rocky groins around the shore just in front of Jezreel al-Hamra. Then there was the dredging of a lagoon that you can see over here. Um, which is basically the area directly behind Jezreel al-Hamra, um, which later became the al-Hamra village, where a number of people are staying uh, in the room later this week. Um, in the mid-2000s, there's the development of Bab al-Bahara, which is now uh, called Marjan Island over here. Um, and then in 2004, there was a press release by the government of Ras al-Khaimah uh, in some of the local media here saying that, well, Jezreel al-Hamra, you know, these buildings are starting to fall down. It represents a safety risk, um, and so we're going to demolish the area. 
Um, now, you've got to recognize that this is being done in concert with the rapid expansion of hotels and other tourism development in that area. So it may not have been necessarily entirely driven by safety, uh, in my opinion. But, um, but uh, the Alzab tribe still claimed ownership on this land, of course. And so there was uh, discussions back and forth between Abu Dhabi and, uh, and the Alzab that are here, as well as the, the rulers and the government in uh, Ras al-Khaimah. Um, and then there was an agreement that we're going to instead go for active restoration and instead turn this into a place that you can bring tourists in order to educate them about the fascinating history of the UAE and this awesome architecture that we have in the Northern Emirates. So they are doing uh, active restoration today. Um, and they have a whole team of archaeologists up there who are uh, doing an incredible job. So they finished a number of buildings back in last summer. Uh, and I've been up there since then, and they're continuing this work. And they're planning to have this as a major tourism destination by 2023. 20, uh, so this just shows you some of the um, comparison between you know, the, the old architecture that you have there and uh, some of the more modern skylines that you're getting uh, behind it, as well as uh, a little bit of the restoration work that's going on. So that sort of gives you the context for the history of Jezerat al-Hamra. And I'll just spend the remainder portion of the talk, um, 15 minutes or so, talking about this fascinating use of coral masonry that we see at this village. Um, so I want to highlight the fact that the use of coral as a masonry tool is not something that's isolated to Jezerat al-Hamra. If you go to Qasr al-Hosin, if you go to uh, uh, the, the old mosque in the Dabiya Mosque, I think it's called, and uh, Fujera, these all have coral integrated into them. And so you see this in the southern Gulf, but also extending as far as Kuwait and down on the east coasts of Africa, like uh, Stone Town and Zanzibar, for example. So it's something that seems to have popped up all at once and spread everywhere all at once. Um, the oldest known uh, record that we have here is from 1446, and that's the mosque that uh, is being shown here over in Fujera. And most of the dating that's been done uh, seems to be around the 18th and 19th centuries when you start to see corals being heavily integrated into these uh, buildings. Um, so it was an industry, an industry that flourished for several hundred years and has now disappeared and nobody knows anything about it. Um, you actually, if you start digging into the literature on this, there's very, very little information. And I think it's a fascinating area that uh, should be explored by historians a bit more. So there have been some visiting scholars um, have, that have suggested um, that these corals were probably coming from Yemen uh, or the east coast of Africa, being put on dows and transported up into the Gulf and then being used as construction. Um, and I just have... Uh, no doubt that that is incorrect. Uh, we have coral reefs right off of our coastlines here, um, and they would have been quite abundant at that point, so I don't see that as being a very reasonable explanation. We also have oral records from the 1800s um, in Sharjah um, where they were collecting, uh, so most of you who know Sharjah know that there's no coral reefs there now, but there was a very extensive reef just 50 years ago, um, it was basically the coastal development in Dubai that just put the uh, nail in the coffin for those guys. Um, so there was extensive reefs there, and we have uh, oral records talking about this being a major industry. And you've got to recognize that this is coming from a culture of people who are already very well um, equipped to go free diving because they were doing it already for pearling. And so this is just a trade that developed as an aside from that. And it was a very local, uh, specialized local trade industry. 
So they, the, the records indicate that they were pulling these corals out. They were sorting them by size and quality in terms of their uh, usefulness for building materials. They then put them in fresh water, which is going to kill off all of the fauna that live inside of them and on them. And then they'd leave them in the sun for six months on the beach to basically dry out and harden. Um, there's some talk that a few of them were collected from far offshore, but the most of the evidence is that uh, they were coming from very nearshore reefs that uh, dotted the coastline here in the UAE. Um, and this is just showing you the coastline from one of those British maps in 1822. So Jezerat al-Hamra is, no, that's Amal Kuwain here. Jezerat al-Hamra is right here. Uh, so the red sand hills are the ones behind it. That's why it has the name the Red Island, Jezerat al-Hamra. Um, and what you can see is if you look at Jezerat al-Hamra and you look just to the left of it, you can see that there's a very extensive reef that's on the records for that area, which would have been a very accessible source for some of these building materials. Um, so there's, we collected some coral samples and did some uh, analyses of these, and this was primarily done by Julie, who gave a talk earlier this afternoon, for those of you who were here, um, who did some geochemical dating for us. Um, she did this using uranium thorium as opposed to carbon-14 because it gives a much more accurate um, interpretation of time. Um, and uh, basically the, the collection process is she went out, she chipped off corals from some of these walls, took those into the lab, checked them for alteration to make sure that they hadn't altered so much that it's going to, let's say, confound the dating estimates. Um, and then uh, basically did some subsurface sampling because, of course, on the outside of these, you're going to have lots of stuff that from, you know, the last decades that they've been sitting there. So she drill in a little bit so that she's um, uh, away from the surface of these and then basically put it in a uh, magic chemistry set and shook it up. Um, so um, uh, ion coupled plasma mass spectrometer. Um, and I'm showing you data for one particular house here. We have data for others, but this is the merchant's house. So this is right on the waterfront. This would have been the leading merchant in the area uh, trading in those pearls. And what you're seeing over here are the dates that were in these walls. And so what you can see is that the date ranges age, uh, in this particular building uh, range from the 1800s up until 1921. And it suggests that basically this building was constructed sort of at the tail end of the boom. Um, so we're seeing things like uh, uh, 1921 in there. Um, other structures, uh, we have collected samples from various homes and mosques in there. Um, and we've got something like 200 samples that we're still slowly sorting through. And I'm just showing a few of them here, giving you an idea of the age range. Um, what you can see looking at these is that basically you see a lot of clusters in the 1700s uh, here suggesting that we had a real boom in this trade industry in the uh, 18th century, which is in line with what we see in other parts of the Gulf. Um, but interestingly, the oldest sample that we saw is from 1551. And again, that's really nice because it ties in with what the oral records suggest was the timing of colonization of Jezerat al-Hamra. Um, and we also see mixed ages. So this 1551 uh, fellow over here is in the same building as one from the 1800s. So it shows that as buildings started falling down and they were doing maintenance, rather than going and wasting time and energy getting them out of the sea, they would just reuse those and integrate them into the newer buildings. So really fascinating. Uh, we then wanted to look a little bit more at, okay, 
So we know that the corals basically started in the 1500s. There was a big boom in them, and then they sort of tapered off in the uh, early 1900s, obviously with the development of things like concrete. Um, so we also wanted to understand a little bit more about the corals themselves that were um, being used there. So this is a bunch of people from the Emirates Natural History Group um, who decided to get involved in terms of this as a citizen science project, and uh, I thank them for their efforts on this. Um, so we had various different groups that were out there, and this, I should point out, this was going on in April, so it was horribly hot uh, for anyone who's not familiar with this area, um, but they trucked through and suffered it. And so we wanted to know first, okay, what about the coral community composition? So we basically went out, we had our, our little marker there, we went in, looked at these uh, corals at eye level, and we're classifying things to uh, genus, so coral genus. Um, and when people weren't sure, so they did go through a training program and they had an assessment at the end of that training program to actually assess their accuracy and then had to redo the training program if they didn't pass. Um, so this is a rigorous uh, uh, program for them. And so they're going through and if they weren't sure, they'd either call Nora and I over to ID it or they'd take a photograph of it and we'd do it for them after the fact. Um, and just showing you a few of these here. Um, so we broke these up into three areas per wall. Um, looking at eye level and then uh, counting the different coral genera that were in these um, places. Um, this is following, again, that training program that we did online as well as doing the assessments in person. Um, and this is just showing you some photos of these folks going about their diligent ways of uh, collecting data. Um, so a few different people here. And just to give you, again, some context for this amazing village that is up there. This is only like a two and a half hour drive away. For those of you who haven't been there, I would highly recommend going up. So you can see just the uh, scale of coral in these buildings. Uh, so in total, these volunteers surveyed a total of 142 walls and classified almost 2,000 corals. So it was an incredible amount of work that they did. Um, and what we see is this. So this is showing you the composition of that, the coral communities that are actually integrated into the walls. And what you can see is there's a lot of platygyra, that's this brain coral that's up here, a lot of parites, which is a mound coral. For those of you who aren't coral specialists, I'll show you pictures of these live in a second. Uh, the third most common is cyphastria, this knobby one that's over here, and so on as you go down. And what's really particularly interesting about this is that if you go out on the modern reefs of the UAE today, and you look at what are the most coral, uh, common coral genera on these reefs, what you'll see is platygyra is super, super common, Parites is very common, and Cyphastria is also very common. So they're basically, again, this is further evidence that they just went offshore and mined the reefs that were right next to them. Um, so they found a, a, um, a, a high diversity of these uh, uh, fellows in there. Um, so interesting insights into the coral use. Uh, we went a little bit further because we wanted to know, well, how much coral? If you've got 500 buildings and all of these walls are made from coral, there's an, an astounding amount. Like I couldn't really, I couldn't take a wild guess on how many coral heads would have been in this building. So we got a GIS map uh, from this area. We then pulled out just the parts that were walls of the courtyards or the buildings themselves so that we could estimate the, uh, the lengths of walls uh, and then their volume. And Astoundingly, there's actually over 50 kilometers of wall just in this village. So those walls, if you were to extend those walls in a straight line, that would go from the border of Abu Dhabi in Dubai to the border of Sharjah in Dubai. So it's a huge linear length of wall that's being used, um, most of which is in the buildings themselves. 
Um, we then went out and estimated the volume of these walls. Um, so we got people measuring the heights and widths of these different things, which are roughly basically my height is the average height. And they're about yay thick, 40 centimeters or so. And then we assumed that, okay, we know that most of the buildings here are actually coral, but we're going to be conservative and assume that only half of this wall, these walls that are in this village actually contain coral, just so we can be conservative with our numbers. And what we uh, then did is estimated the density of these. So we went out and we found out, okay, how many corals do you get in every square meter of these? And we're getting 14 on average per square meter and use that to calculate how many corals would have been in this village. And what we end up with is an astounding 12 million coral heads are integrated into the walls of this historic village. And again, that's a conservative estimate. Uh, it's probably in excess of 20 million corals that are integrated into this. And they all would have been mined from those reefs that are along the shore of the Northern Emirates. They're right next to Jezreel Alhamra. Um, so in the buildings themselves, there's only over 8 million corals, we estimate, and about 4 million in the courtyard walls themselves. And just... Um, to put this into some context, that equates with almost 10,000 cubic meters. But like most people don't think in cubic meters. So if you're to take these and there's no space between them, you tightly pack them, um, what that would fill would be the entire palisade at the uh, base of the Statue of Liberty. I work for NYU, so I have to use an NYU example. Um, or if you took a rugby pitch and you stacked it up exactly one meter high, it would fill the entire rugby pitch. So that's an astounding amount of coral that was mined from the sea and put into these walls. Um, so just to summarize everything and close up the talk, um, this is probably one of the most important uh, historic sites in the UAE. I'm very happy that the government of Ras al-Khaimah and the government of Abu Dhabi have collaborated on this to uh, enhance the preservation and protection of this site because it is one of the last remaining sites that still exhibits that traditional architecture that's now lost. Um, we have this record spanning over four centuries uh, in these buildings um, and sort of exemplifying that major trade industry that we've now lost to the sands of time as well. Um, and it does give us important insights into the coral communities that we have on our reefs today um, and showing that the coral communities that we had at that point are very similar to what we have today, which is heartening. Um, and also that there's a great potential for citizen science uh, here in the Emirates. So this is just one minor project, but there's many things that people in the room as researchers could be doing by making use of these very able, very willing volunteers that we have out there in the community. So I'd encourage anyone who's thinking about doing something that doesn't require a lot of technical background to really consider developing a citizen science approach. And with that, I will close for the evening and uh, thank you for coming. I'll take questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.